Hello and welcome to Saving Animals with Blank Park Zoo. I'm Ryan Bickle. On today's show, we have Greg Burrard. He's a conservation biologist and founder of the Save the Nautilus Project. And he's also an instructor down at Central Campus uh, in Des Moines. So welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, you were on the show uh, a couple months back, and it uh, sounds like you've had some adventures since then. So we thought we'd bring you back just to catch up on um, what you've been doing and some new stuff with your project. Um, but first, before we get into that, we're going to talk about Blank Park Zoo. And Blank Park Zoo's been uh, on the south side of Des Moines since 1966. We started as the Des Moines Children's Zoo. And in the 80s, we closed uh, doors and remodeled and opened again in 87 as a accredited uh, zoo and uh, as Blank Park Zoo. And since that time, we've grown quite a bit. And, you know, the past 10 years, we've remodeled and and added uh, new animals such as the rhinos and uh, have all sorts of great exhibits and Really, we've uh, probably in the last 10 years uh, brought a focus to conservation that uh, we haven't had before. And one of the things that uh, you can do just by, uh, just by visiting the zoo, a portion of what you uh, spend here at the zoo goes to projects in the wild um, to help save animals in the wild. So um, you can do good just by visiting the zoo, and plus you can learn about the conservation status of the rhinos and uh, why they are being threatened and how you can help, and, and just simple things that you can do uh, locally. So we're here with uh, Greg Burrard, and Greg, tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at Central Campus. Yeah, again, thanks for having me back. And you know, my background is really in the ocean. I, I grew up really wanting to learn more about giant squid and study squid. And ever since then, I've been trying to figure out, you know, how to do that, working towards that. And I came across an animal called the chambered nautilus, and it's kind of driven my career since then. And ironically, this nautilus that lives far out in the Pacific brought me to Iowa. And I'm in Iowa running a, a really awesome marine biology program for public high school students. I think that's the, the coolest thing for us. It's for anybody in the Des Moines area in high school. They can take this course. They can learn about the ocean, learn about animals that they have never heard about, and also learn about conservation things with the ocean. You know, what's, what's happening with the ocean thousands of miles away from Iowa? And it's a really, really unique place. And uh, we are you know, open to uh, visits as well. So, you know, you can contact us, contact the school, and really great facility, and the students do it all. So really happy to be here. Yeah, it's really an unbelievable facility. I remember it's been many, many years now, but I took a class down at Central Campus, and then I was able to tour your facility probably two years ago, and just was amazed by what you guys have done down there and uh, all the fish tanks and uh, different things you guys do um, trying to, uh, I believe it's called aquaculture, you know, uh, yeah. and, and those sort of things. Um, so it, it's a really a terrific facility. If you get a chance to tour, I would highly recommend. Um, okay, so uh, you, you've come to Des Moines. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Chambered Nautilus. 
So, so this uh, chambered nautilus is what we call a cephalopod. And what that means is it's related to octopus, squid, and cuttlefish, which you're probably familiar with. We, you know, we see the octopus, we see them change colors. The nautilus doesn't really do any of that. It has an external shell, which is its primary defense. And you've probably seen the shell. You might look at your, um, your mantle or your bookcase, and you might have a shell in your house because the shell is striped. It's very beautiful. People want it. And that's kind of one of the reasons that got us involved with this animal is that it's an animal that has been around for you know, almost 500 million years. Its lineage can be traced through the fossil record. And just in the past few decades, unregulated fisheries throughout the Pacific are kind of really putting a huge impact on their populations. And in some areas, the populations are simply gone. So we've been kind of taking too many of these shells from certain places, not knowing how many are left, and we're trying to pick up the pieces now to try and put back together some kind of puzzle. Yeah, and, and we went into depth in on that subject in our last podcast, so you can head over to our website at blankparkzoo.com and find that podcast if you want to learn more about that. Um, you took uh, several trips this summer. You're back in school now, but during the summer you took several trips. Why don't you tell us about those uh, what you were doing and what you were hoping to accomplish. Right. So so the first trip we took was uh, just basically a trip to do a conference. So every year there are several professional conferences that scientists, biologists, and folks meet at. And what we were doing there is sharing our knowledge with other conservationists, other marine biologists. So we were talking about Nautilus. The next person after us was talking about marine iguanas or talking about sharks. So it's a great kind of way to learn from others that are studying animals very different than yours that can also help you. So we, we started out kind of sharing everything in New Zealand. And then our main expedition this past summer was into Fiji, where we were really searching for the Nautilus egg, uh, something that's never been seen in the wild. It's really hard to find. We weren't really sure what would happen with this trip, but we knew we wanted to try and find this Nautilus egg. Okay, so take us through how do you find something uh, that's never been found before? It's, it's difficult, and, you know, we have a lot of information from nautiluses and aquariums. We know what the eggs look like. We think we have an idea of what depths they're laid based on some analysis looking at the egg. So the plan was to use remote-operated vehicles to kind of scan these basically mountains in the ocean. And these mountains in the ocean that we're looking at are about 200 meters deep. So the idea was to go to Fiji, drive around these remote operated vehicles, which think of a, a drone in the air, it's kind of like an underwater drone, and just scan these rock cliffs looking for this egg that's about the size of a nickel or so, maybe an inch, inch and a half. And it's hidden in crevices, it's hidden in rocks, it kind of looks like rocks, and hopefully get lucky. Because if we were able to find this, this would be the next big step in Nautilus biology, which would help us tell, or which would help us understand how they reproduce. You know, where do they lay their eggs? Are they all in one place? Is it one egg here and then a mile away you see another egg? It's just a huge gap in our understanding that would would really help us in our Nautilus conservation efforts. So how did you decide now's the time to do this? 
Yeah, I think it kind of, you know, sometimes you can be lucky or you're just in the right place in the right time. And just everything kind of came together with this project we're starting in Fiji, which is a five-year project, um, doing some other work with Nautiluses. But we decided to add this in as, you know, something we need to do more of. You know, every time we do an expedition, we like to do something else, kind of continuing to build on what we've done in previous years. And we had the resources, we had the, the uh, assistance, we had the opportunity. So we just said, let's try it this year and let's iron out all the kinks and we'll be able to do better next year. Okay, so you're down there in Fiji and you have uh, some great, uh, I, always, I always, you know, people always say toys, but I always correct them and say, no, these are tools. So you have some awesome uh, toys and uh, you're driving them around the ocean. I, I mean, I, I imagine this is is fun, but it is also probably nerve-wracking. Are we going to be able to find it? Um, how much time do you have to find this? Are you under pressure? That sort of thing. Right. And, and yes, we're under pressure with everything because we're doing four or five different things. And um, we have to make sure we have time to do everything. The, the primary reason we are there is to survey Nautilus populations in the deep sea using a different type of underwater camera. So we have to allocate a certain amount of time to that. And then we have to make sure we have time to drive around these, these cool, they are really cool toys. And once you have this, this ROV or this remote operated vehicle in the water, then you're, you kind of have to trust the gauges and trust the depth because you're looking at a computer screen the vehicle is underwater, maybe 50 meters, 100 meters, and you can't really see anything until you hit the bottom. That's the strange thing is that, you know, you put this, this vehicle in the water, it has really, really bright lights. But if there's nothing for those lights to bounce off of, you're just seeing nothing. And it isn't until you hit the bottom that you kind of, you know, take a sigh of relief. And I don't mean hit the bottom literally, but you reach the bottom, you can see structure, and then you can kind of start searching. But we ran into, you know, so many problems of, you know, currents, uh, currents in the ocean kind of taking our ROV different places. ROV wasn't strong enough to kind of go against some of these currents, just working in high seas, you have bad weather. So there's all these issues that, you know, hopefully out of that, you get a few days of good weather and um, good times to actually do this, which we ended up getting. Um, is is there a tether on the ROV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the ROV is tethered to to the boat to a receiver so on the boat. So you can always bring so, it back up in yeah. case something goes wrong. So we can always bring it back up, but that's another kind of stressful thing because it's a tether, and our boats have propellers, so you have to have somebody monitoring that tether so it doesn't get caught in the boat prop and get cut, or you know we have to have so many people doing one job to make this work. And when it did work, it was really awesome to see. How many how many people I mean how big of of boats are you on how many people are involved in this I, I wish we were on bigger boats but you know the the boat size was about twenty five feet or so and it wasn't really a fancy boat uh, they used the boat there for diving trips in Fiji so we worked with a local company there that helped us out uh, we had a great boat captain thankfully and there were about four or five of us on the team doing the work so. Um, kind of crowded, but there were enough people to get everything done. And um, fortunately, our work is really close to shore. 
So it's just about a 10 to 15 minute boat ride out, do your work, 10 to 15 minute boat ride in, and then you get some sleep. I, I went snorkeling once and the, the waters were really choppy uh, and and I didn't do so well. So, I mean, do you, have to, do you guys have to battle like seasickness or anything like that and, and just, you know, pull through it or? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I get seasickness and you kind of have to get through it. You know, the best thing you can do sometimes when you are seasick is just to work, take your mind off of it, you know, look at the horizon, take seasickness pills, but everybody gets seasick, you know, at some point or another. So you just got to take a deep breath, work through it, focus on what you need to do, and then uh, deal with it once you get back to shore. So, you know, how many days were you down there? We were only down there for 16 days. You were down there 16 days, and how how many days were the waters calm enough to to do the research? We We had three days where we could deploy the remote operated vehicle because just the weather, the current wasn't wasn't safe for anybody to put this equipment out there, to have us out there. So out of all those days, you know, we had three good days where we were able to actually deploy it. Is that typical in the trips that you've done where you only, you know, get like a third of the time or? Well, we usually we're not out there very often. So for the other half of our work, we can kind of work whenever we want. Uh, okay. Whether or not it's you know big seas, low seas, but with this new thing with an ROV and the tether, you know you're really looking at currents and tides. So it is fairly typical, but most of the time, most of our other work, we're able to work through it. So does the tether provide power, or are you limited with battery life? Or I mean, are there other factors that sort of slow things down or make things frustrating? Yeah, the, the tether um, the, the tether does provide uh, battery. It's also sending up the signal of what it's seeing. So it's it's a communication mm-hmm. from the top side yeah. to the downside, and uh, you know it overall that it's not really too hard once you get the swing of things. It's mm-hmm. not too frustrating. It's just a matter of having folks trained on what to do with the tether, how to drive it, what to look for, have the boat captain ready to kind of steer the boat in certain areas if they need to. Uh, it's just a lot of moving pieces all at once. So when the ROV uh, reaches the bottom and you're able to see something, could you, um, you know, give us word pictures of what you see down there? Yeah. So one of our kind of test trials with this ROV was to try and find this coral reef about 60, 70 meters down in the middle of this bay. So it's kind of trying to hit the bullseye you know, dead center, and you're just going down. And, you know, it takes about 15 minutes to to drive this thing down there where you're not seeing anything, not seeing anything. And then all of a sudden, all these vibrant colors open up, and you see glass sponges that are blues and greens and reds. You see different corals that are all different colors. You see fish. You just see a whole new world that you wouldn't see just going above it. And then you kind of look around you, and you see all these boats going around and just there's all this stuff happening at the surface, but there's so much of this stuff happening below the surface and even deeper than divers go, again, that we don't have an understanding about. So it's just kind of seeing what most folks have never seen or what many people are never able to see and just that exploration factor of new things. You know, Whether it's the same dive three nights in a row, you're going to see something different in the deep sea, and that's the really cool factor of it. So... Um the, the um, 
you're, you're driving the ROV around, and is there anything that you, you saw down there that surprised you? I think the biggest thing that surprised us is on one evening when we had just deployed the ROV. And the, the great thing about this ROV is it's a really, really relatively small. You know, it's about two feet or so. So it's really easy to kind of move. But we just set it in the water and we started to go down. And uh, we saw four or five fairly large sharks, six-foot black tip reef sharks or so. And just kind of hanging out right at the surface. I mean, it's dusk, starting to be feeding time. And, you know, I guess we knew they were there. We just weren't expecting to see them so close. And it's always nice to see a shark in the ocean because you hear that, you know, they're declining everywhere. And they are. So when you see so many and you see these big animals, just really cool. But you don't have to. It's not like the movies, right? I mean, you see the sharks, but you're not diving in the water. You're just, you know, you, you, you think, hey, this is cool. Yeah, well, the you know, flash forward a, a week later, and we were diving in the water, uh, free diving in the water with some nautiluses. So whenever we collect nautiluses, we release them back into the ocean. And we have to release them in a, in a safe way so that they get back down to their home, they don't get eaten, they, you know, are safe. So one day when we were doing this, um, this is one of the things I like doing. And just because I'm in the water by myself, I'm with the nautilus, everyone else is on the boat doing other work. And you know, you're free diving 20 feet down. You're watching this nautilus go down. And then you see some fish kind of out of the corner of your eye, and they end up being skipjack tuna. They're about a foot long or so, and uh, there may be 50 or so of them. Nice school of skipjack tuna. And then I turn to my right, and maybe 5 to 10 feet off, I see a big bull shark kind of come in my direction. And I'm not afraid of sharks. I, you know, I, I definitely respect what a shark could do um but then processing all that information of there's tuna sharks eat tuna it's sunset when you know feeding likely occurs we're pretty far off the coast um i made sure the nautilus got down i got back in the boat pretty quickly mm -hmm. because you know i didn't want to be in a situation where i couldn't control it and right. with more sharks coming you can't really control that so you know i get back up into the boat and, you know, a few minutes later, you start to see some of the fish kind of jump at the surface of the water. And, and you know there's a feeding going on. The sharks are going after fish. And, you know, you don't want to be in that because you never know what a shark's going to accidentally go after. Yeah. But um, there is that, that, you know, that danger, I guess, of, of some of these trips that, you know, you have to always be aware of your surroundings uh, because you don't know, you know, what's kind of yeah. coming out of the corner of your eye. Yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. I'm, I imagine oh, yeah. it's sort of like uh, uh, probably um, you know hiking in an area where there's bears, knowing that there could be a bear and being prepared. And I mean, maybe that's the land version of of that. Maybe. I, I think so. I think yeah. that's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to your exploring for these Nautilus eggs. Did you find any? Yeah. So unfortunately, we didn't. We didn't really get to the right areas we were hoping for, but I think we did enough practice, enough trials with our methods that we can improve them next time, yeah. kind of have a better idea mm -hmm. where to go and do some better searches. So, yeah, the bummer is we didn't find the Nautilus egg, but, you know, we did so much other great work on this Fiji trip that was really outstanding. So uh, you're learning new methods. Tell us some of the other things that you were doing and learning and and. 
Yeah, so we, we also deploy these, these underwater cameras, and um, these underwater cameras record nautiluses but other animals really deep. And the really interesting thing with that is after our work this year in Fiji and looking at these nautiluses more and more and looking at some genetic work that had been done previously, the Fijian nautiluses look like they're their own species. So there's only one type of Fijian nautilus. It's different than any other nautilus in the world. And what's important about that is that means that if the Fijian nautilus were to disappear, you know, you would never see that kind of nautilus again. And it just kind of you know, you'd put things together and you'd look more and more. And uh, the biggest thing was this Fijian nautilus is the smallest of any nautilus out there. It's a really small thing. And then there's all these other differences that the more you look, you realize you have a new species. Um, so we're describing that new species now. And um, it's, a, it's an exciting thing for Fiji. It's an exciting thing for the fisheries officers we were working with there to know that they have their own nautilus. And so... We're really excited to continue a project working with them for the next five years to, you know, not just survey Nautilus populations, but hopefully the whole deep sea of Fiji and then use that as a model of how to do it in other areas throughout the Pacific in American Samoa, the Philippines. So really excited time for deep sea um, exploration and Nautiluses and really, really happy and can't wait to get back there next year. So you plan on going back next year, huh? For the next five years or multiple times a year or? Multiple times a year would be great, but definitely once a year um, yeah. in, in July, primarily to Fiji and then expand to other areas uh, so we can continue doing this work uh, throughout the whole Pacific. And then um, other things you learned. Yeah, I think we learned that it's, it's always harder than you think. So there's a lot of conservation work that we've done in the past to get nautiluses listed on different kind of organizations' lists of protected species. And nautiluses are now protected by different organizations. And that doesn't really cause issues, but it makes doing research a little different. You have to do things a little differently. You have to work with more people, which in the end is great because you have more collaboration, you're learning from others. And so it was a new kind of process of just how to get normal research done and just kind of learning your way through it and, you know, figuring out what the pitfalls were and, you know, how you could do things better next time. And also just the excitement of, of other folks in your work. You know, it's, you can get so kind of, kind of in a uh, uh, tunnel of that, you know, we're focusing on this Nautilus. It's so awesome. But it's great to see the collaborators we're working with, they're excited as well. And then it's great to see new opportunities with students at the universities in Fiji start working with us and they start building programs and then eventually they take it over. And, you know, that's, that's what we would want. That would be the, the end goal, I think, uh, to our work there. Well, that sounds good. Is there anything more uh, you want to add to this before we switch subjects? I just I think this is kind of the the age of the Nautilus. I think um, every fifty years or so, it seems like folks are really interested, and and I, I think the next kind of five ten years, the Nautilus and the deep sea is just going to open up so much more to explore with the ocean. It's really going to connect it all. I think to you know the coral reefs, the open ocean. I think this deep sea uh, Nautilus ecosystem is really going to be a huge benefit to our understanding. So. 
I'm excited to uh, keep working with it. I'm looking forward to building our collaborations and working with more folks. All right. So th- there you have it. And um, I-, I guess I want to switch subjects now because Jesse was telling me that you've made some changes in your classroom about single-use plastics and recycling and uh, you have maybe uh, you've taken another step now see I take baby steps and I'm I'm not quite where you are yet on on plastic use but I would love to learn more about what you think about uh, single-use plastics and recycling and how that affects the oceans and did you um, see any plastic pollution while you were uh, on your trip yeah I think Again, that's the the thing with this work is that you can be so focused on what you're doing that you could look past that bottle floating on the surface. You could look past that plastic bag that you see 300 meters down right next to this Nautilus. Mm-hmm. You, we could easily look past it. And, you know, several years ago, I, I kind of decided that I couldn't. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't think I could look past that anymore. So, one of the big things we do at Central Campus is, you know, we try and ask the students to to think about things and to question things. And, you know, what could we do just a little better to lessen our impact on, you know, the rivers that eventually get to the ocean and eventually affect the world? So um, a couple, well, a week ago now, I guess, school started and I decided to stop recycling in our classroom. And I had this as our first day. So the students show up, and we had a, a meal of plastics that you might find in the ocean. So I prepared a meal for the students. They lifted a lid thinking there was food and found plastic. And we started the discussion with, you know, what is this? Can you recycle it? Can you throw it away? What do you do with it? And some of them wanted to recycle it. Some of them didn't know what to do with it. It was really that realization of, you know, what is recycling? What are what are single-use plastics? I mean, what is this that we're we're so concerned with that is very important to understand? But we didn't really have an understanding, and I didn't have an understanding. So I didn't think that I could advocate for you know recycling as the solution to everything without understanding more. So as a, a as a conservation biologist, it's weird to you know, not recycle in my classroom because I grew up thinking that's what I should do. And over the last week, um, without kind of prompting the students, you know, students have brought up things and discussion points of, oh, did you hear about some places banning straws, but they're going to use lids? Is that better or worse? Or a student reads an article in the New York Times about the best things to recycle, the worst things to recycle. So it's already getting kind of what I was hoping for of a discussion. So we understand kind of a little more what's going on. And and maybe just real quickly, why is recycling, give us your thoughts on the problem with it. I think, I think recycling should be kind of the last resort. I think uh, the first thing, you know, we could all do is, you know, just decide to refuse something. You know, we, we grow up with the three R's with the reduce, reuse, recycle. 
And, you know, there's something you could do even before that of just, I don't need the plastic bag. Right. I, don't, I don't need the straw. I don't need the lid. Yeah. And, but it's hard. I mean, I, you know, right, I'm, yeah. I'm 35 years old. I, I think. So there's just, nothing wrong with recycling. It's just right. that it's, it's better not to use it in the first place. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there are really great things that you can recycle, you know, cardboard and aluminum. Some things are, are potentially really good recyclables, but yeah. especially when you're looking at plastics, are they really good recyclers? You know, can right. we do more by just, you know, not using it so that we can take that whole plastic out of the mm-hmm. equation because we're not using it? Yeah, I think it's been really interesting to read some of the press about plastics and straws this summer. And, and I, it's almost disappointing that it's become political because then people get on one side or the other. And I don't think that that's really necessary with this issue. Right. And, and I, I all the awareness and all the, you know, talk about so many things that, you know, this little straw has brought out is so great. And I think it's discussion is good and questioning, you know, folks is really good. And I think that's how we're going to get to a solution by understanding why we're doing things, looking at our choices and then changing things if we feel like we should. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we hope to have you back again. And uh, I can't believe a half hour has already gone by. But it was fascinating to learn more about the Nautilus, and uh, uh, hopefully we can have you back real soon. If you want to learn more about Blank Park Zoo, uh, head over to our website at blankparkzoo.com and make sure you join us out here at the zoo sometime this year. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time here on Saving Animals with Blank Park Zoo.